0: Hey everyone, Emily Peck here with What Next TBD, closing out 2023. It's been a wild year, folks, especially for tech. We saw AI finally break through to the mainstream, crypto star, or former star, Sam Bankman-Fried was put on trial and convicted, and I mean, so much Elon Musk drama. But now it's the holidays, and TBD is taking a break from the news to look back at the year, We'll return with new episodes in January. And in the meantime, here's one of our favorite episodes from 2023. We hope you enjoy. One of the splashiest and most consequential moves Elon Musk made after taking over the platform formerly known as Twitter was to strip verified accounts of their blue check marks. Overnight last spring, a blue check mark went from a symbol that meant you were who you said you were to a scarlet letter marking those who paid Musk. $8 a month for the privilege of posting. But strangely, some high profile accounts got to keep their blue check marks free of charge, even if they didn't want them, including novelist Stephen King. So we asked King what he made of the change. Steve, can you, um,
1: can you tell me who you are and what you do?
2: <laughs> My name is uh, Stephen King. Uh, I'm a writer freelance writer, uh, novelist, short story writer, and uh, sometimes essays, and that's what I do. That's who I am and what I do.
1: And you have 7.1 million Twitter followers last time I checked.
2: If you say so.
1: Stephen King, yes, that Stephen King, agreed to talk to me because he, like many Twitter users, had a somewhat confusing weekend online. Late last week, Twitter began removing verification badges, aka blue check marks, from legacy verified accounts and only keeping them for people who paid $8 a month for Twitter Blue. Except Stephen never paid. You tweeted on, on April 20th, my Twitter account says I've subscribed to Twitter Blue. I haven't. My Twitter account says I've given a phone number. I haven't. W- like, What do you make of this state of affairs?
2: Well, I... I don't really understand it i mean elon musk after i said that he he tweeted back that uh, uh thank you no, and then the little praying hands thing that means namaste and uh i thought to myself you know what this is really kind of weird he gifted me this thing but it said on the original blue check that i'd given that i'd actually approved of it or I had paid for it or given a phone number and none of that stuff was true.
1: And he's not alone. A slew of celebrities, LeBron James, Brie Larson and William Shatner, among others, still have blue checks. None of them have subscribed to Twitter Blue either. Elon Musk has implied that he's personally paying for them, even if they don't want him to. Some people have theorized that accounts with over a million followers are automatically getting blue checks. That seems to be what happened to John Favreau, who has 1.4 million followers:
3: I did not no I did not uh, I did not subscribe because I do not want to give uh, Elon Musk any money.
1: John co-founded Crooked Media, hosts several podcasts there and used to work for President Obama. and his check mark just appeared, though he did think about getting rid of it.
3: There's some people who were telling me like, well, if you change your name, then the check mark can go away, but then you can't say anything about it or else it will come back. And I thought about doing that, but I was like, you know what? I think that's a bridge too far for me personally to like let everyone know, hey, I'm I, I so want you all to know that I don't have this, that I didn't pay for this blue check mark, that I'm going to do this workaround to get rid of it. Um, and also because he's quite capricious in how he manages Twitter. Um, I don't know that like if I changed my name or he's he would like suspend us or all the people who did this, right? Because he's a little he's a little petty like that and capricious.
1: <laughs> Some other people seem amused by the whole thing. New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, who has four and a half million followers, also got a check mark without paying. He emailed me to say he appreciates that he apparently lives, quote, rent-free in Musk's head. Honestly, this whole episode is pretty strange. But so is Twitter since Elon Musk took over. Stephen King described it in a tweet as a once pleasant neighborhood that's turned grungy and a little ominous.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's gotten very strange. You know, there are a lot of people that I don't follow who are now part of my Twitter feed. Um, I don't mind. I don't block them. I think I want to know what they're doing. But, you know, I get lots of tweets from every day. Every day I get tweets from Matt Gaetz, uh, Jim Jordan, Lauren Boebert, uh, a number of different people who are just sort of like all in on Trump to the, to the extent that it's actually sort of amusing, you know.
1: He says he has no plans to leave Twitter, but He doesn't tweet as much as he used to, and he doesn't go on as often. Same with John. Twitter is just not the same anymore, and it's starting to feel like end times. So today on the show, is this it? Is the blue checkmark drama a metaphor for a rudderless company and an executive who's flailing? It used to be that having a blue checkmark on your Twitter profile meant one of a few things. You were a celebrity or had a corporate or government account, or that you were a journalist. The point was that someone at Twitter had checked to see that you were who you said you were. I had one until last week. So did Alex Heath, who is the deputy editor of The Verge. And this weekend, Alex was watching the whole mess around the checkmarks unfold.
4: So when I saw that LeBron had a check on his profile and said he was paying for Twitter Blue, um, you know, myself and others in our newsroom remembered him tweeting that he would not be paying for it. uh, And also just, you know, kind of tangentially knowing about LeBron, he doesn't like to pay for things like this. It's not really how he operates. And so I thought something was fishy about that and ended up getting in contact with his team who quickly confirmed he hadn't paid. And then found out that Twitter was actually reaching out to a select handful of accounts on behalf of Elon, offering to comp their subs. And even though LeBron didn't say he wanted his sub comps, they were showing that he was paying for blue anyway. Uh, And it turns out then Elon quickly confirmed after our story that he was personally paying for LeBron's account, Stephen King, and William Shatner. And then shortly after that, uh, over the weekend... It, it looked like thousands of accounts were suddenly re-verified, uh, many of them with over one million followers. So Twitter quickly started re-verifying people without their consent.
1: I mean, wh- what do you think it says about a product when when arguably the most famous or certainly one of the most famous athletes on the planet goes out of their way to like make it clear that they don't use your product, that they're not paying for this thing?
4: I mean, it says it's not working, right? It's the whole concept of the check has been inverted to where it used to be this status symbol that sure, you know, we all joked about in the media. And, you know, you would hear things like, you know, what social media manager in 2015 had a contact at Twitter that got you verified, you know, stuff like that. Like it was never a thing that was really cool, right? But it had a sense of status to it that you couldn't just easily get. And it also wasn't obviously tied to Elon. And yeah, I think when you have someone like LeBron pushing back on something as silly as a check mark, it really just goes to show how Twitter's reputation has, has sank very quickly under Elon. And this is something people don't want to be associated with, even when it's as superficial as a check mark.
1: I want to do a little table setting and and delve into some of your reporting because this feels both like it's sort of a slow drama and that it happened very quickly. So about a year ago, April 14th, 2022, Elon Musk takes a 9.2% stake in Twitter. Do you remember what you thought when that happened?
4: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When that first happened, I think myself and a lot of people who've covered Twitter for a long time were frankly surprised. You know, Elon had been a Twitter power user for a while, but I don't think any of us expected him with kind of all of his interests and different companies to want to get involved in another one, especially one as complicated as Twitter. And Twitter was financially on the precipice of of collapse at that point already. Um, It had gone through a lot of management shakeup. um, The current regime at the time was trying to rebuild it and convince Wall Street that this was a company that that could kind of last on its own. And I think when we first saw Elon take that ownership stake, we thought, oh, maybe he just has ideas. He wants to be on the board. And that's going to be a good thing for Twitter because he's Elon Musk. He has seemingly infinite resources and connections. And he'll make Twitter um, a better company because he's a power user. I mean, the joke with Twitter for years was that the everyone except Jack Dorsey, like who was in management, didn't actually use the service. like. I remember writing stories when, like, they would hire a new head of product and the head of product had never tweeted or a board member would join and the board member didn't have an account. (laughs) So, like, it was just this kind of clown show, frankly, for a long time. And I think people thought Elon was going to come in and, and help, actually.
1: As Musk's real interest in Twitter became clear last spring, there was some trepidation at the company. But Alex talked to people on the inside who were excited for the new boss, who were ready to take a gamble on his notoriously hardcore way of doing things.
4: Elon's has a reputation or had a reputation for kind of galvanizing engineers, getting people to do and accomplish really hard things. At the same time, he's shown little to no regard for things like labor laws. He's been in a lot of hot lawsuits and employment disputes And so there were concerns about that and just his style, right, It was very different from the Twitter management style, which I would almost describe as like stoic to, to a fault at the time. Like, Elon is the opposite. So yeah, there were definitely reservations, but I would say it didn't really turn until he actually bought the company.
1: He became CEO on October 27th. And I wonder, in that period of time from then till now, what are the moments that really stick in your brain as sort of like the high points, the low points, or just the, oh my God, points?
4: It really was a, a business story that's stranger than fiction. You really couldn't write how ridiculous it was from the very beginning. I remember the very first weekend that Elon had closed the deal and was preparing to do the layoffs, the initial layoffs a couple of, uh, I don't know what you would call them, uh, comedians, I guess they want to be known as, but, uh, people who work in tech in San Francisco impersonated through Twitter employees standing outside of the office with their boxes, carrying their belongings out, um, as if the layoffs had just started the very first day and they hadn't actually started yet, but, um, they were already kind of capitalizing on the, media frenzy of the moment.
3: I just got let go. Um, I'm a data engineer. We've been having a lot of problems and uh, apparently Elon just came in and pulled the plug on the whole team.
0: How are you feeling?
3: Terrible. I feel really bad. I
4: feel really shitty. One was uh, said his name was Rawligma, um, which is a pretty crass uh, internet meme joke in the gaming community. Uh, the other one I think was Daniel Johnson, It just kind of set off how absurd and irreverent and ridiculous, frankly, this whole story was going to be. And then Elon, like, you know, (laughs) like fed into it on Twitter. Uh, He actually hired those guys at one point briefly and brought them into the company and they like met with him. And so just like, wow, this is going to be a circus.
1: Just days into his tenure as CEO, Elon started laying people off soon cutting as many as half of the 7,500 people who worked there when he took over. In mid-November, he made it clear that he expected anyone who remained at Twitter to make it their top priority.
4: He sent this email one evening saying, you need to be extremely hardcore if you're going to stay here. And he wanted people to opt into this new kind of work culture the next day on like a Google form, just hitting like yes or no on a Google form if they said no or they didn't respond they were going to be fired. And I didn't know how many of the remaining employees would opt in. I thought it would be more frankly than dead just because the the world was starting to change quite a bit. Tech companies were talking about laying people off, the market for these kinds of employees, the job market had really turned and I was like, "Oh, maybe people will stay." Turns out that a lot of people left, and there was this moment in Slack and Twitter Slack where it was just hundreds and hundreds of the salute emoji, which has become kind of synonymous with with tech layoffs now, and like standing in solidarity with with your former employees of people just saying, "No, I'm not opting into this extremely hardcore culture." And it it took Elon by surprise. It took his team by surprise. They were frantically trying to keep some you know special employees, some senior engineers, from leaving who all decided to leave. And I just remember talking to people at the time who, before Elon bought the company, really admired him and admired what he'd done with Tesla and SpaceX and wanted to work for him and had just become so disillusioned and angry at how he treated the company and the and the people there coming in. And that felt like a real turning point. And I don't think the company, the company certainly hasn't recovered since then.
1: When we come back, it's goodbye, Tony Stark. Hello, mess. This episode is
5: brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at progressive.com to try the name your price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, Price and Coverage Match Limited by State Law.
1: I want to talk about Elon and I guess the the both the public perception of him, but also how that is felt within his companies how how do you think that has changed basically as a as a function of what we've seen in the last year
4: uh, it's been a real distraction for his other companies i remember i talked to someone who was on his transition team he brought a bunch of employees over from tesla spacex neuralink to twitter to aid with the transition because he didn't trust the employees at twitter to help him kind of take over the company. And there was a quote that one member of the transition team I remember said to me kind of in the middle of it, kind of in the first several weeks, where he just was like, what the fuck does this have to do with cars? And that kind of like stood with me. Hmm. Um and, you know, even then people who were working for Musk and his other companies were like, why is he doing this?
1: Online, Musk has become a committed reply guy a dedicated poster of memes, and someone who is playing footsie with, if not outright embracing, some of the worst parts of the online right. He also has a tendency to punch or tweet down.
4: He's becoming a little more unhinged publicly. He's got people hating on him now, and I think it's definitely, you know, now looking, we're almost, what, we're a year into when he initially said he was going to buy Twitter before he backtracked. Like, it's certainly changed the perception of working at Tesla or working at SpaceX and, and Elon himself. So it's made it a lot harder, I would say, for, for people who work at his other companies.
1: Because I think you have, obviously, a, a huge split in reactions toward him. You have people who feel like they're discovering a new version of him. There are people who say, well, wait a minute, the the Tesla Fremont plant, you know, it was been sued by the state of California for, you know, when you read the complaint, pretty egregious racism, And so there's this sort of, I think, conversation about whether he has changed or whether this process has uncovered different parts of him. I wonder how you think about that, because you have a a much more up-close look at how he is behaving sort of within his companies, but also outside of them
4: online. He does seem to have changed. I don't know how to exactly word it, but... Twitter is just this very weird place. And he is in this really weird place where he's the biggest user on the platform that he bought and is really running it as a reflection of his own random whims and desires. Gosh. Yeah. I just, I don't even know how to put it into words. I mean, it seems to have gotten to him and really caused a lot of, Stress, although he seems to be having fun in moments, you know, like he loves the spectacle of it all. You know, it's like kind of reminds me of Trump in a way. Yeah. Um, Like he kind of just wants to see it all burn. I I do think this kind of a platform is so different from anything he's ever done. This is Twitter is really about people at the end of the day. It's not about rockets or self-driving algorithms or factories. It's a very human, emotional thing. And, uh, you know, we've seen Elon kind of go through very tough periods before just running Tesla and SpaceX and the toll it's taken on him. And he's talked very publicly about it. It seems like this Twitter acquisition has been, you know, the most uh, intense kind of toll on him to date. And he's already had some big moments like that. So it seems like he probably regrets it. I mean, he's kind of hinted at that much in like recent interviews.
1: I mean, he did try to get out of it. He was basically forced to buy the company.
4: Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't want to buy it. I mean, this is the important thing to remember is he he was basically forced to buy it after he tried to get out of the deal. And now he's stuck with it. And can he afford to light $44 billion on fire? Yeah, he probably actually can, amazingly. He's one of the probably only people in the world that can. Will that be good for his reputation? No. But he feels this very close, like, interwoven sense of, like, purpose with Twitter, for better or worse. And it's his marketing channel. You know, Tesla famously doesn't pay for marketing. They don't have a comms department. You know, he is Twitter's number one user. Without it, his megaphone becomes significantly diminished. Right. So I think it's kind of like they're they're stuck together, for better or worse, now.
1: We mentioned this. He did have to buy the company or go to court. but. He didn't have to do what he's currently doing. And I wonder when you talk to people within the company, what's the vibe like now?
4: Twitter has shed, you know, 80% of the workforce at this point. If you're left there, you've watched your bosses, 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 boss, in some cases, either be fired or resign. And now you're running the team that you were four layers down on before, just, you know, six months ago. and. You're also like working for a company that's compensation structure is kind of unknown. I mean, he's giving people stock in this new X holding company, but people don't really have a sense of what the return on that is going to be versus a publicly traded company. The market for you know where you could go has become significantly constricted, right? Companies aren't hiring in tech like they used to before he bought the company. I don't know. It's a lot of people who are sensing an opportunity to rise up the ranks, get close to the world's richest man, prove something to him that will potentially help them in their career. He's got a lot of people like this who have impressed him in critical moments and risen up the ranks very quickly and now they're running huge parts of his operation and have been with him for a very long time. He does breed a sense of loyalty that's interesting even throughout all this. But a lot of the more experienced people who have, you know, their career Tech people have left already, and I don't really see how Twitter can hire the best people given its current situation and how Musk is handling it.
1: Do you have any sense of how he regards this moment? Like, does he think what he is doing is a success, or, or does he think he's flailing?
4: I'm sure there is a sense of flailing. I mean, he thinks that he is getting towards this egalitarian, free speech platform, town square thing. I think he actually does truly really believe that. He's a very idealistic person who, and I'm not saying that like idealistic in a good way, I'm just saying these kind of upper echelon tech billionaires, they kind of think at an altitude that can afford them a detachment from reality, I guess. I don't know if there's a better way to put that, but he, I think, is cautiously optimistic that Twitter will become a better company over the long term, but is very, has acknowledged internally and externally that It's going to be a very rough transitional period. And I think there is a danger that, you know, he just alienates so many users and advertisers that he can't recover. But he doesn't seem to think that yet. There's been the speculation from the beginning that everything he's doing is to just destroy the company out of spite. And I don't really buy that. But I do think he doesn't really understand what he bought still.
1: On the one hand, he's overhauling Twitter's main interface by creating the For You feed and prioritizing the tweets of people who have paid for Twitter Blue, suggesting he wants to focus on his small group of subscribers. But on the other, he said he wants to remake the app into something totally different called X. He went so far as to merge Twitter into something called the X Corp, a change first noticed by slate journalists in court filings, by the way.
4: He has this vision to make Twitter a super app which is tech speak for an app that does a bunch of things. I guess the closest analogy would be WeChat in China where which is kind of like Facebook Messenger meets Uber meets your bank meets like a gaming platform. You can just do a ton of stuff in there. He wants Twitter to eventually become that. He says this was his original vision for PayPal. He was early leader at PayPal mm-hmm. and wanted PayPal to be called X. You know, there's this theory in the Elon Musk fan community that he'll eventually create this kind of Tony Stark-like tech conglomerate of Tesla, Starlink, SpaceX, Twitter, whatever else he does, his AI stuff, and X, and it all be kind of integrated, and maybe you can, like, you know, hail your autonomous Tesla from the Twitter app. I mean, he's literally told employees he wants Twitter to be a bank account to have savings and be able to send people checks, like literally physical checks, and do all kinds of financial stuff on the platform. It's a lot.
1: But he says a lot of things that aren't true.
4: Right. (laughs) Right. Um, I I do think this part, the super app, everything uh, app strategy is the underlying goal. I just don't think he has any idea how to get there and hasn't bothered to consult with the people in social media who have already tried this over the years and failed. Because there's nothing he's doing so far that would indicate... I mean, he laid the team off that was building a lot of experiences that would have actually made Twitter a super app. He just like laid the whole team off uh, early on. So it's unclear if he actually has the wherewithal or ability to actually do that, but that's what he's told employees.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned Tony Stark because that's that's the the fanboy vision, right, is that he is Tony Stark and that I think actually Robert Downey Jr. may have met with him when he was kind of creating the character. And I wonder, like, if that's, if that's the good Elon Musk, what's the other Elon Musk? Because you could also zoom out and look at this trajectory over the past year and a half and say, man, this feels a lot less like Tony Stark and a lot more like a cartoon villain.
4: Yeah, or like Howard Hughes, right? He certainly has picked fights on issues that look really distasteful and, frankly, just horrible. Um, And he also is known to punch down, which, I don't know, just is not befitting the world's richest man. He's very, like, petty. You know, he's been wielding Twitter kind of like a weapon against competitors, randomly blocking links to competitors or banning people for talking about competitors. Yeah, his behavior has become more erratic as time has gone on. It hasn't, like, stabilized, certainly.
1: To me, the verification blue checkmark drama felt like a shift. But I'm willing to be convinced that I'm wrong and that, you know, Twitter is going to march along and everything will be okay. What do you think?
4: I don't know. You know, personally, I want Twitter to live. I I've invested a lot into Twitter as have many in the media. I kind of owe my career to it frankly. I've made a lot of very valuable connections through it. Invested a lot in the platform. It'd be very sad for it to just kind of slowly decay and go away as it seems to be. The tinge of optimism I want to have is that you know maybe market forces and incentives will be enough to have the ship be righted and maybe he finally gets a new CEO and he gets enough pressure from Tesla investors to detach from Twitter, installs new management, that management rights to ship. That's the really only optimistic take. Right now, it does seem like Twitter is quickly losing its cultural relevance. Yeah. Its actual relevance as a town square, which is what he said he wants it to be. It's really just become like Elon's playground. You know, it's like, it feels like you used to go to Twitter to see what was going on, and now you go to Twitter to see what was going on with Elon. And... I don't know how that changes. It seems to just be going that direction more and more. So I would say the only optimistic take is that he gets out of the way at this point.
1: But at this point, Twitter needs money. Historically, 90% of the company's revenue has come from ads. And as of February, more than half of the company's top 1,000 advertisers stopped advertising on the platform, according to one report. It's hard to know exactly what's going on financially since the company's private now. But it doesn't seem like Musk's bet on $8 subscriptions is anywhere near a success.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be the business that he and management before had hoped, but Twitter's already trending towards a collapsing business. So I'm not sure there's much to gain there. It kind of looks more like Rupert Murdoch owning Fox News type thing, where it used to be this social platform and it's increasingly now being molded around the worldview of its of its boss, and we've seen kind of what that's done to Fox. It looks more and more like a media company. It looks like a tool for a billionaire to get his worldview out there and kind of shape society as he wants, which is not at all what he said he bought Twitter for. (laughs) So it's, it's ironic.
1: I wonder what you think Twitter would need in order to succeed. Like, let's say starting tomorrow, you could prescribe a way for this company to get back on its on its feet like what would what would he need to do
4: i mean i think the easiest thing is to just bring in a new ceo and kind of get out of the way and bring someone in who either used to work at twitter or has experience in the space who understands these platforms and the humanness of them and advertising he hasn't said that's going to happen anytime soon but short of that i don't really see what will help things rebound
1: Alex Heath, thank you for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Alex Heath is deputy editor at The Verge. Special thanks to Stephen King, John Favreau, and Paul Krugman. And if you want to hear my whole interview with Stephen King, just head on over to the Slate Plus version of this show. We have dropped it there for your listening pleasure. And that is our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And we will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.